two, three, one. Did you say two, three, one? You know, here's the thing. <laughs> so y'all heard that click, and I'm going to leave it in in the edit so that you understand what's happening here. I want to advise folks. Brook Lottie, classic Lottie. <laughs> um, I've been sipping on it consistently since we started, and I forgot a very key piece of information about it. It is bottled at 50%, 100 proof. So it is. Oh wow! It's a little bit more. Normally, <laughs> I, I think uh, Patrick, you're Glenfiddich. I think it's bottled at forty three percent. So I'm going to 100, 100% uh, give myself a pass on that uh, at this point. That should be the new tagline. So strong it'll make you count wrong. <laughs> so strong it'll make you count wrong. I like it. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Hey everybody, you're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast. Thanks for joining us this evening. This is episode number 60, where we will be talking about UX career paths and different specialties within the sphere of user experience. We're joined this evening by special guest Patrick, 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 I'm not even drinking it and I can't get the, the words out of my mouth. Patrick it's Branigan. Patrick Pranigan. It, I always, what? I'm sorry, Patrick, yeah. but every time I read your name, I also think about uh, what's, what's the starship captain on, uh, Patrick on Futurama? Oh. Zap? Zap Brannigan, yeah. Is that yeah, oh. I get that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every every time I, I say it, I think about it. Folks, if you are enjoying the Drunken UX podcast, be sure to stop by our friends in the interactive mapping world over at New Cloud. You can check them out at newcloud.com slash drunken UX. Be sure to throw the slash drunken UX on there so that they know that you got there because you were listening to us. We would appreciate it and uh, they would love to sell you a map, maybe, or an illustration. Uh, let's see what else. I am your host, Michael Veenan. I'm your other other host, Aaron Hill. How you doing, Michael? Uh, not too bad. I'm still cooped up in the house, but I've been trying to get out and get some fresh air whenever possible. We're yeah. I had a walk today. That was nice, folks. If you want to connect with us, if you are out there and you're cooped up and looking for somebody to chat with, you can find us on uh, Twitter or Facebook at slash Drunken UX. You can also hit us on Instagram at slash Drunken UX podcast if you want to chat with us there is a change you can still use our old url that we plugged in other episodes but use drunkenux.com slash discord we are moving from mm -hmm. slack to discord there are a number of reasons for that change none of which are really important to anybody but us but we will be transitioning over to discord so uh, feel free to use the old link if you hear that um, it will just refer you to discord so don't be confused if you do slash slack and it sends you to a different application uh, uh invite but aaron what are you drinking tonight man i just got i'm going basic i got a svedka and tonic tonight yeah it's just like this is super simple like i don't want to say it's technically alcohol i mean because it's good like it's flavorless vodka like you know and then you you add the flavor to it um, i like it because it's cheap and it's like good enough yeah Hey, the, there's nothing to knock by finding something that you like that uh, doesn't break the bank. I'm not going to, mm -hmm. never going to throw a shade. I, I drink monkey shoulder and that's a $32 <laughs> bottle liquor. of scotch. And uh, <laughs> Wait, was know, that the one that's that wasn't technically liquor? What was the one that was technically alcohol? Oh, you know, I don't know what rocks. started that now. Oh yeah. Rocks. So ironically yeah. though, so uh, on the rocks, technically alcohol, yeah. technically scotch. 
um, comes from a <laughs> distillery called uh, Brooklady. Now, On the Rocks, I don't think you can get it anymore. I don't think they make it anymore because Brooklady is, I kind of refer to them as a boutique scotch distiller. They like okay. doing like limited runs or specialty runs of things. They generally mm-hmm. don't have age statements on anything because of the way they blend their scotch. Um, but I am drinking a Brook Lottie tonight. I'm drinking the Classic Lottie. So it's the one, last episode I had huh. uh, you choose for me, the Four Roses or the Brook Lottie. I had Four Roses then, so I'm having the Brook Lottie tonight. It's the okay. Classic Lottie. Um, it's very nice. It's an Isla Scotch, normally Isla Scotches, very smoky, um, very peaty. Uh, the Classic Lottie is an unpeated Isla Scotch, so it doesn't have huh. that like punch-you-in-the-face kind of flavor. It's actually... Huh. On the nose, it's very like a sort of dry grass, morning grass kind of smell, um, grainy kind of smelling, but it's got an oily, slightly sweet palate to it. Um, okay. you, you get a little, there is a tiny bit of like salt, but there's this briny, because it is still an island-based scotch, so you get a sort of brininess that comes out in it that's kind of nice. Um, so if you think about that interplay between salt and sweet a little bit um, is... Definitely what you huh. what you get out of it, and I'll Patrick. I, the next time I have it, yeah, okay. uh, I've never even heard of that. It's well, just one of many. And Burke Lottie's been really hit or miss for me, um, but I do like the classic Lottie. Um, it's one that I am willing to to go and. And the bottle is just very pretty. It's a bright green. Uh, oh yeah! Wow, green boy, uh, Patrick. Cool. I think you're you're joining me on the uh, trip to Scotland, right? Yeah, I. I'm a beer guy myself, so this is a special occasion. Uh, I am drinking Valley of the Deer, which I, I think it's Valley of the Deer, um, in Scottish Gaelic, Glenfiddich, uh, yeah. 15 year. Uh, uh, so I'm nice. enjoying that uh, for the first time in quite some time. Like I said, not typical typical drink of mine, but the the nice. 15 is good. Um, the 18 is pretty incredible, though a little pricey. <laughs> The mm-hmm. 21 is one of my all-time favorites. It's a Speyside Scotch. It's sweet. The, the 21, the Grand Reserva, is aged in rum casks, um, mm. similar to the Balvenie 14. Um, mm. has a Balvenie, beautiful, yeah, okay. beautiful brown sugar kind of flavor to it. Um, the double wood is still my favorite. All my friends stopped getting married. So, oh, well, they, I ran out of marriages to go to, so I have. Uh, that's where I would drink my scotch, usually, weddings. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the thing I really like about Glenfiddich, even at, like, the 12, the 12 is even really good, and I think really outperforms, say, um, Glenlivet 12, you'll run into a lot. Um, both Speysides, Glenlivet 12 has very little flavor to it for me, but Glenfiddich at a 12-year is actually still really good, too, um, and very affordable. Um, I think thirty-five, maybe forty. Yeah, I think it's it's usually that would be usually if I were to buy a bottle, what I would get. This was a gift from a friend of mine from New York for my my birthday a couple of years ago. So it's still running strong. So this week we are talking all about UX roles and job titles and and specialties and skills and all of this um, to help you kind of understand when we talk about user experience, that's a huge bucket of information. 
And so it's way too big for me. It's way too big for Aaron, um, at least by ourselves. So we brought in Pat, Patrick. I, I did it again. Why am I inserting extra <laughs> It's <R's>? okay. <laughs> this is the only time you've done this. <laughs> I say I feel feel bad about that, but the number of times people have mispronounced my last name, you know. Yeah, no, I, I'm totally I'm, fine. <laughs> it's a lot of letters. I think it's what, seven and seven. That's, yeah, it's 14 or so. Yeah. He is a product designer at a little company that I have a tiny bit of familiarity with called Aquint. Oh, I think I've heard of them before. Yeah, Patrick and I are co-workers, as it turns out, <laughs> but um, we have a lot of overlap in some of the stuff we do. I am a front-end developer, but he is one of our product designers and is heavily involved in both you know, design and interaction design and visual design and all the things for the most yeah. part, which we will get into why these things overlap. Um, Patrick, man, thanks for taking the time and sitting down with us. I know everything is crazy, but hey, we're all trapped at home, so we might as well be doing something with this time, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's I'm happy to be here. I am thriving in this uh, moment of being trapped at home. I, I don't wish it upon anybody, obviously, especially with these circumstances, but yeah, I've been making do and it's been quite productive actually for myself but yeah thanks for having me so i thought the the best place to start with this discussion is let's talk first and foremost about sort of the skills that make up ux um, because even I, I i think it's worth kind of pointing out that even if you're a developer like aaron mm -hmm. you're a you're a ruby guy you're a back-end guy uh yeah you know first and foremost but the code you write still produces a user experience at some level. Oh yeah, I I mean I I I've used to do like both sides a lot more. And while we don't necessarily we won't get into it in this episode, and, and we probably won't really talk about it much anywhere. But even things like writing, you know, things on the back end where if you're doing you know database layer abstraction layer mm -hmm. type stuff, like latency in those exchanges. Mm -hmm translates to user experience problems because yeah. it means the front end is slow and the user doesn't know if it's broken or they should wait or or whatever the case may be mm -hmm. yeah the interconnectivity of it all is what i think makes user experience design hard to compartmentalize right i mean some of those facets you know I, i'm sure you'll touch on them but Research, planning, creation, delivery, maintenance, and then you have front end, back end, as we're talking about, and, and the design aspect to it all. And that all connects into the marketing, and the marketing connects into the brand and identity. And it, it's, it's a hefty uh, term right now. And then you get into things like CX, customer experience, yeah, and, and yeah, all exactly. that. But, you know, these are things that bolt on. And yeah, as you know, this feels like it feels like every time a scandal gets the word gate added to it. That's what this feels like. <laughs> yeah, everything just everything gets an X on the end. Now we work as an industry by trying to carve out value. And we say, this is what I do. This is what I specialize in. This is what makes me valuable. And it's one of the reasons why you start getting all of these titles and all of this uh, sort of fracturing of it. So people are just saying, this is my specialty. If I write a blog gives it a name and it gets picked up on reddit then suddenly it's a thing for the next six months yeah it's that's kind of a the blessing and the curse or the double-edged sword i guess of of the entire conversation because it i think the limelight on ux design uh 
began to sh- to to shine heaviest in the era of us being able to self-publish whatever you know whatever we want and the accessibility to those those pieces of content was easier and easier and it's hard to define but at the same time we tend to be in complete control of how we want to define it it's just a matter of understanding what that is yeah so i i wrote a list here and these are in no particular order but one of the big ones to me is research and analytics mm-hmm. because you got to know your users you got to you have to know things to do things and yeah. there, there'll be an mm-hmm. article and i'll warn everybody not warn i will advise everybody <laughs> This episode is reference heavy, and I'm not going to stop to point out every one of them. The show notes are going to be ripe with a ton of links that describe all of these job titles, all of these roles, advice. So with research research and analytics, um, of course, Nielsen Norman Group, uh, as always, has a, a great article that has a breakdown of a bunch of tips for user research. Go check it out. It'll be in the show notes along with everything else that we'll be talking about. Um, but research is a huge piece of this equation. Um, I think first yep. and foremost. Yeah, totally is. Um, and with that, I mean, I think research has uh, an acute and particular connection to the ideas of UX design, uh, user-centered design, design thinking, so on and so forth. And within that realm, there's just seemingly an infinite amount of methods and exercises that can be employed to garner a better understanding of what we hope is people that are using these products and services. And so research, that general area, I think, is indeed probably the the first to become, I, I say compartmentalized, I don't mean that in a bad way, but the, the first to become a little bit more defined in these processes that these companies are creating internally to create better user experiences. The the second area, and I've I've joked about this in, on well elsewhere. I don't know if I've, I've I've brought this up on this show actually. I was a theater major in college, what? which will come as a surprise to <laughs> nobody who knows me. I learned that tonight. <laughs> uh, but I say that I was actually a communication major. My degree is a communication degree. It just happens to have been emphasized within theater. But communication is another important piece of user experience, and not just how you are able to, you know, talk to the rest of your teams or or get a point across to management. A big part of this comes back to listening. It's the the whole reason it's called user experience is it's about the user. And so a person's ability to sit in a room with 10 people, ask a question, and then just absorb the feedback they're giving you and write it down and take note of it. That's hard for a lot of people. Yep. And also differentiate between one loud person and a bunch of very quiet people who may be Mm -hmm. having a real problem. One loud person can make a trivial problem seem huge. A lot of quiet people (laughs) may have a a frustration that's not getting noticed. That's 100% true, though. And it's not just if if you expand that, uh, you know, design researchers and design strategists have to be good at listening to users, but they also have to be good at listening to the the companies, the businesses perspective, yeah. um, the the marketing's perspective, the opportunistic uh, spaces that are surfaced through these ideas that companies are coming up with. And yeah, it, it's hard. It is. It's hard to listen. And being a de- you know traditionally as a designer, it's 
it's kind of a game of output. And I think it was a game of output. And I think what it's becoming more and more so uh, of is a a game of outcomes. And in order Hmm. to really align everybody behind an outcome and, and, and a vision, there's the inherent necessity to understand multiple perspectives. And by understand, I mean, listen to them and make sense of them. Yeah. You know, you know what this makes you think of, Michael, since you and I both have a background in higher ed, it's when you're in a meeting about content for the homepage on the higher ed website and the dean or chancellor or whoever your highest high ranking hippo is. Hippo, yeah. Hi, <laughs> highest hippo. paid person's opinion. <laughs> right. They, uh, they're really set on their being a carousel or making it pop or anything yep. like that. And you have the uh, the rank and file people who do the actual research on what students and these perspectives and everybody else wants and very quiet. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And I think that ties into communication, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, just generally the way in which um, you as a designer have to articulate in, in in a synchronized fashion what these different perspectives mean to one another and find the the unification or that thread of of common understanding. Being able to explain that is difficult, and being able to explain it to everybody who you were listening to, those different perspectives, in a way that they all understand that is also quite difficult. Yeah. Um, testing. Testing's a big part, of course, We've and we've referred how many times, Aaron, we should we need a clicker for that, right? The, how many times <laughs> we refer to rocket surgery made easy? User yeah. testing and, and understanding how to create a test that does you know the thing of the scientific method right it's all about generating a hypothesis creating a test reviewing your results and seeing did you prove or disprove that hypothesis and that's hard because a lot of people especially when a hippo is involved and is saying do mm-hmm. this thing they are inclined to tailor the test to produce the result that you know their ceo their cmo that whoever is driving a point, you know, they, they're inclined to kind of say, yeah, we'll just make the test so that it produces an outcome. And that's not good. It's, it's not uncommon for the outcomes of these tests to, to invalidate the ideas of these, as you're calling them, hippos or whoever, right? And then it's a challenge of, well, what findings or opportunities are we finding in this quote-unquote failure that could push the product or the service uh, forward? That's, you know, constant learning and iteration, and that happens with tests. Yeah. So you were a theater major in college. I was a a chemistry major, and one of the things that they always impressed on us in our lab classes was that, um, like, science isn't about proving things. It's about disproving things. And so, like, you mentioned making a hypothesis. A good hypothesis is one that says, like, well, if this hypothesis wasn't true, this is what we would see. And you look for that negative outcome. Yeah. And then you look for Mm -hmm. a different negative outcome and you keep looking for different ones and you you try to kind of slice it. You're you're like you're carving that marble away from the statue. You're not molding the statue out of clay. Mm -hmm. And so you're just finding different pieces of chaff that like, well, if this was chaff, it would this would happen. You cut that away to a degree what we're fundamentally doing is experimenting and i think that that is much of what you're explaining too and and experiments just generally when money is on the line that that term in and of itself is scary right yeah. so and i i view testing too as something that 
I'm sure we've said this kind of in the past that, you know, what was true for your users when you started your application or your tool or your site may not be true two or three years later once they're familiar. Mm -hmm. You know, testing is always about challenging what you knew as much as what you want to know sometimes. And a lot of the times you can get very focused on testing the new thing, but not testing your old things. And so I think that's something else. And mm. those are the kind of nuanced pieces of information that I think become very valuable when somebody says, yeah, oh yeah, we tested all of this stuff. And then we went back and we redid it six months later and we discovered that people had acclimated and were using shortcuts. And so we improved this experience further because they got used to it. You know, skeuomorphism is that classic uh, uh, comparison. We started with skeuomorphism because we needed people to understand mobile interfaces in a way mm. that nobody had ever seen before. Apple comes out with this thing called the iPhone. Well, how do you change the volume? Let's give them a knob. <laughs> Eventually, people figured that out. And so you could start to simplify it and reduce and shave away. And as Aaron, to your example, we chipped away the marble mm -hmm. on that. And yeah. now skeuomorphism feels old and dated and not as uh, as sexy as far as that goes. And for those, we should probably say skeuomorphism is the practice of making, you know, designing something digitally to resemble something analog. So uh, the like I had said with iPhone, the idea of volume knobs. Mm -hmm. A good example of that too is uh, if you want to look into the research and testimonials behind it. But uh, car car consoles and dashboards—that's a wild west realm right now of understanding a balance <laughs> yeah. between skeuomorphism, reality, what I can actually touch, what I can't, uh, in circumstances where I can't hear or I can't look or I can't see. So what am I doing? Um, so you're seeing a really cool amalgamation of ideas happening in that space that have to do with several different quote unquote past trends, if you will, in design. The the uh, implementation of skeuomorphism is what Donald Norman would call uh, affordances. You're, you're adapting, you're improving onboarding for a user by adapting something they know to something you're trying to teach them. Yeah. So the, the you know, the volume knob or the, the button that looks clickable because it has a drop shadow are, are ways to indicate or just kind of suggest this can be clicked on where this can be turned. And like you mentioned before, we don't really need to teach people that anymore. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think that like, as long as, as long as the presentation of it isn't inhibiting it like you don't necessarily have to not do it it's just not as necessary as it used to be one of the uh, big areas of ux gets into prototyping and wireframing and this one is i think pretty straightforward it's exactly what it sounds like the ability to create an interface and show it to somebody and see does it work does it not work can you play with it the idea behind prototyping and wireframing is no different i think in the digital space than it has been in any space for the last hundred years for the most part. It just takes on a slightly different form for us. Yeah, if anything, it's easier, right, for us to, yeah. we don't have to deal as much with physical materials, for example, but they still, you know, when you're creating an object, you're still prototyping multiple, multiple times to get that feedback. Yeah. Um, writing an IA, because the words you use generate an experience. Um, and 
Uh, one of the other ones this folds into a little bit is accessibility and inclusive design. Um, the reason I add these two together, the way like cognitive impairment and, and thinking about like reading level, reading level mm. can be an accessibility issue and understanding, you know, that a lot, I don't know what it is in the U S now. Doesn't the average person read it like a ninth grade level in the U S or something like frighteningly low actually is, is what I remember. And I'm going to afford myself give myself the affordance <laughs> to be wrong in my memory on that but writing an ia ia is information architecture it's the structuring of your data um, not just uh dealing with navigation and folders but literally thinking mm -hmm. about where do people go to find certain information about you and and how is that structured here's a pro tip don't organize your information architecture to directly reflect the architecture or the organization of your organization. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> I, I made I made that mistake a long time ago, early in my career. <laughs> Anybody who has worked in higher ed can, I think, sympathize with that because yeah. there is such, not just even hierarchy of the university from like a people standpoint, but you fight with the structure of, you know, you think, well, you have a call or you have the university. The university is composed of colleges. The colleges are mm -hmm. composed of uh, of programs. But that kind of architecture stuff is where, again, you want the user to find what they're looking for. The last big one is interaction design. This is all of those little things, all of the little bits and pieces that start to bind together one interface to another interface how a button behaves, what happens when you click on an element, down to what is the resulting page, you know, uh, on the graph that you're looking at or or the checkout of your shopping cart. Interaction design flows through all of, you know, all of that experience. We'll talk about journeys here in a second. The user journey, the customer journey all revolves around interaction design and figuring out how how to get people to do things and entice them to uh, engage in your design without it being into that hostile pattern, that hostile pattern and, and dark pattern territory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sort of like the before, the moment of, and the moment after is kind of how I've always thought of interaction design, both on, well, really on any level. Uh, it could be a button or it could be, uh, I don't know, jumping down an inflatable slide that you pressed a button and it inflated itself. Who knows? But that's an interaction. That's probably like, well, maybe one of the hotter topics of the past two to four years from the perspective of anybody who isn't specifically and traditionally or historically involved in interaction design is how designers could more fluidly and rapidly uh, create and prototype interactions into these visual assets that they have. And that's where you're seeing uh, the rise of a lot of software ranging from I don't know, Zeppelin's been around for a while, but you had Envision Studio, Figma, mm -hmm. the list goes on, so on and so forth. Um, so from there, the reason I brought Patrick in here, um, as a, a product designer... <laughs> a, the, the longest introduction ever. Yeah, yeah this, this is all an intro for Patrick to get to, get to this point. Um, Patrick has uh -oh. been working on a tool recently that we've got to look at internally that is very cool that deals with figuring out how skills apply to a user and how 
different strengths in these different areas translate to what you are. And I want to be first, straight up first and foremost, there's no finite list. As we've already said, this is like a growing industry. You will see titles come and go as the industry matures. These are going to be a lot of like the really common ones that you'll hear and, and what they do, basically. Or or where they fit, I think, is a is a good way to put it. Right. I think uh, there's so many facets to experience design and everybody with a particular, you know, T-depth uh, specialty can fit into the world of UX. Uh, it's It's not so much, do you have the right skills to be a UX designer? It's more, what value do you bring that helps our experience process and team uh, go to the next level. And it's valuable, I think, right, to especially understand how broad this is when it comes to interacting with people who aren't in web development, interacting with marketers, interacting with management, and helping them understand why you may be good in a couple of these areas, why you're not good at all of them. Because we're going to go over a couple here there's not a lot of overlap in some of these, even though they all tend to be considered UX. And that's okay. Like, that's, I think, the big mm -hmm. part is I want to show you how broad this is so that you don't feel bad when you're not good at all of it, because you shouldn't be. Most of you will fall into the first category. Most people who get into this field will be the designer of one. I think that's, is that... Uh, yeah, it's kind of the, I think it's been discussed as the one who wears many or all of right. the hats i think in in the past and i for one have been in that position multiple times and there it's a very fruitful position because you learn a lot of skills that aren't directly related to your output as a designer absolutely um and that goes for both the craft but also the business right what to do when to do it what not to do and when not to do it and so yeah it's the type of designer that has a general understanding of the UX design process and the methodologies involved in, in their entirety and therefore can deliver uh, enough value in any one area. The phrase you'll hear in articles, I think a lot, is UX generalist. Yeah. Yep. And I, I correct me if I'm wrong, I'm going to speculate here as we talk through these I feel like if you start as a designer of one or a generalist and that's something you really get your foothold in, you will generally evolve into either like a UX design architect or a product designer because those roles, as we'll mention here, tend to oversee a lot. Like they, they understand sort of the full chain, the end-to-end -end process mm -hmm. a lot better. Yeah, I would speculate even further myself and say product design in some ways is what the the conversation of UX design was a couple of years ago. It's it's just now becoming more and more relevant, I think, to businesses that there are specialties in UX design and UX design is is much more of a a a, a concert, if you will, rather than a skill set. And yeah. product design, to your point, I think uh is is a specific position where, yeah, you're not going extraordinarily deep um every day. I'll, I'll put it to you that way. Right. You you do you do get into the weeds, you do get into the intricacies, but your primary value isn't so much tied to particular artifacts or uh, particular um, spaces in teams. It's more of the uh, 
the perspective on on orchestrating multiple things at one time with a with a unified and forward thinking vision. What I've done, I had I've looked at Patrick's tool and I lifted most of these titles from that. And I think maybe one or two of them came from some other research. And I've lifted some titles from places yeah, over the years right. that I've come across. So these are not <laughs> by any means novel to me. Starting with UX researcher. This one's easy, I think. A UX researcher is exactly what it sounds like. It's a data scientist, right? Like that's that's the sort of more generic term you would have heard applied to this 10 years ago. I, I would take issue with it's exactly what it sounds like because before we, we had we interviewed um or we had a guest, Annie Lynn, on episode fifty six. Yeah. And she is a UX researcher, like that's her profession. Um, and before that episode, I had a very different thought of what UX research was. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. And so I, I think the my the takeaway that I had was that UX researchers are looking into the future of where UX is heading, rather than looking at what like the current practices are. I always thought UXR was like, you know, like oh, someone who has read all of the NNG and all of the current usability books and is like a mastery of that. But that's not, it's like future. I think both are true, quite frankly. <laughs> you know, it, mm -hmm. researchers of in, in any field, you have your futurists, you have, you know, the people who are trying to predict where things will go, but you also have people who are trying to predict if, or not predict, but verify if what is happening now works. That's the, we've used this phrase, I think, before, trust but verify. That's what mm. analytics mm -hmm. is all about. Trust but verify, that's what the researcher does. They are the verify piece of that equation, whether that's verifying what you think is going to happen or what you think is happening. And so they're the people who know how to step in and run, I said earlier, that scientific method. Just generally from my perspective, the UX designer as a researcher is one who tends to conduct uh, qualitative and quantitative research in order to essentially inform decisions that are going to be made. But that requires the ability to look forward. It requires to predict uh, opportunity for in a, in a large part. And that is very forward thinking. And more importantly, their ability to help synthesize that research to inform the business and their future is really where, where their value from a high level uh, Excels. Earlier we mentioned testing. This is where the testing starts to factor in because they will take the test results and figure out how do these things answer. There, of course, will be an article specifically in the show notes that goes into, you know, what what is a UX researcher and how do you become one? Um, Annie's episode was episode 56, if you want to go back and check that one out. Yeah. I found that design researchers in UX teams they are super valuable when it comes to understanding the uncertain, the complex, and the ambiguity that exists in a marketplace or, uh, or the, the strategy and, and, and positioning of a product. Mm -hmm. I've never known a researcher that didn't love being given the opportunity to say, go learn something. Yeah, right, like, right. not here's what we want to know. It's go out and, and figure something out. Like that's where I, I've always found researchers really thrive is just being given carte blanche and say, hey, go figure out where we're going. And and, and it's hard. It's yeah. like it is very hard. I mean, and they may be wrong. Yeah, totally. The amount it's hard on two fronts. One, there is a lot involved with research as a, as a, as a designer involved in research. There is a lot to do. And two 
once you get down from the the tier of companies that are the Facebooks, the IBMs, the mm-hmm. the oracles of the world, research is often the area that a company looks at and really needs to be proven to that it's valuable. And that's that's the difficulty I think for a lot of, you know, smaller companies that don't have the bandwidth or don't have the resource or don't have the monetary foundation to to invest. And uh it's unfortunate, but I think it's becoming more and more um prevalent throughout, you know, a range of of industries and verticals. Yeah. Um so from there we translate into UX strategist. The way I classify this is the strategist is the person who, I hate this phrase, change agent. I don't. Uh, I, <laughs> it feels like disruptor. Like it's, that same yeah, level of buzz. I hate that phrase, change agent. The idea is UX strategist drives change. Strategy is all about, you know, positioning yourself. It's all about finding advantage. To me, a UX strategist is that person who figures out from the information the researcher gives them and and other things, they are helping product managers and product designers identify the opportunities for the business. And then how do we align that with what our business strategy is and you know what the user expectations are for our company? Yeah, I, I think that's that's to a good degree how I think about uh a design strategist in the in the realm of of user experience design. I think I like to think of it as they're sort of the folks who act as a compass for navigating that big picture or that future if it if it's if I it's like looking that. like it could be fruitful, right? Yeah, I like that a lot. So they're very much involved in the in the explorative uh environments in businesses and they're there to work with your head of products and your C suite and, and your design team. And there's somebody that the communication piece is going to factor in very heavily because they need to know how to take this information the researchers are giving them and have it make sense to the business strategy. Sure. And that can be very, you know, that can go through many layers before it gets to those people. And so articulating that well and helping people understand that can be incredibly valuable. Yeah, they leverage too, I think just generally speaking they if you're in the room with several different perspectives in the business they're able to leverage uh the user side of things in terms of what's the strategy plan going to be from their design architects this is one i call the maestro a design ux design <laughs> architect is somebody that i think of as the person who conducts the concert right they're helping, especially when we get into talking about visual designers and information architects. They're the peop- they're or they're the person who is really keeping all of these things in sort of a lockstep. Or as a physical architect, they're the person who knows how to make the building and make it in a way that can be actually built. I I it's funny you mentioned like a uh a musical analogy because I often uh, arrive at analogies in music when I'm talking about product design. They're often the kind of the kind of designer who's able to deliver um, sort of original concepts uh, in a way that they articulate it to a wide audience, and hmm. that that synchronization that you're talking about, sort of like the orchestrator, if you will, they're able to structure that in a way that makes sense both to the product or the service but also to the business and and make it a bit more concrete. Could you could you elaborate how 
I don't mean to sneak preview the next one, but the way that you describe design architect makes you think of product designer. That's yeah. That's why I was saying I, it's yeah. funny that you mentioned the music analogy because <laughs> that is very much an overlap. I think when I think of architects just generally uh, in the UX space, their their focus tends to be more on overall literal function, yeah. if if you will. Whereas a product designer, while while I as a product designer care very much about how things are functioning in the work that we're doing, I spend most of my time more in the subjective up top and more of a higher level having to overview and oversee um, what's going on from front to back, I guess. I think of a guy like Frank Lloyd Wright a lot in this sort of a silo because, you know, he was somebody, you know, revolutionary in the, you know, physical structure, architecture uh, realm. And, you know, he designed houses that pushed boundaries and innovated in a lot of different areas. And you can look at his houses today and think, I'm impressed that that thing is still standing because he understood the big picture when he would design those things. And he knew that if I bring in these people and these resources, we can make this house. Was it a waterfall is, is waterfall falling water, falling water. That's what it is. Um, is one of those houses that it's like, it shouldn't be, but he knew how to do it and he was able to pull it off. Hmm. And that's where I think about something like a UX architect. Hmm. So you mentioned product designer. So this is the next one in my list here. So the way I phrased it was, you know, the product designer is likely to create or oversee journey maps, wireframes, prototypes, and even system design. I really hate the way I write notes sometimes. Uh, <laughs> if you're if if you're taking, say, a lot of synthesized findings from a researcher and you're working with a strategist to infuse those into the business. I kind of, again, see the architect in the planning state being able to infuse that into the blueprint of what we might build and work with UX designers and product designers to see that out, hmm. which could be wrong, which could be totally wrong, by the way. That's just <laughs> as are most you know, labels and titles. Why did I even make an attempt at a tool, right? <laughs> So your title is product designer. What would you view your responsibilities as a product designer? What does that encompass for you, Patrick? I will preface this with, I work at a particular company that sees product design as, a, as, a, as something that another company may not. Sure. So it does depend on where you're at. But product design, I view as more of a holistic approach to building something from start to finish and beyond that hopefully serves a need. Um, as a product designer in my role, I'm at the intersection of a lot of disciplines. I need to have like the wherewithal and overarching perspective on a problem space to the degree that I can work towards a solution, both at the ground level and also at a higher level. And to go back to the music analogy, I do find myself in a position where I, I feel like I'm a player of an instrument who is keenly interested and understands the orchestra as a whole. So I have my hand in the intricacies of the work, but I'm also constantly aware of the full piece and its meaning, if that makes any sense. You know the melody. Um, okay. Right. And I, th I do think, too, and I don't know if this is true elsewhere, but a lot of my job is in making sense of 
several perspectives that are inbound about an idea. Uh, alignment okay. of teams and their perspectives and alignment of three facets that I'm always having to keep track of in my head, which is the business, the user, and opportunity. Um, so defining, defining a problem, making, a, making something to solve it, and validating uh, the solution in the real world is sort of like the baseline that I would say that I'm involved in. From product design, we get into visual design. Now, visual design can be, I think, frequently confused with simply graphic design. Mm. Um, it is. Mm. It's it's a, a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle isn't always a square, right? There's okay. overlap, and there's a lot of overlap, but visual design tends to focus heavily on, you'll hear phrases like visual communication or visual language. Um, oh, okay. okay. And and it generally will apply only in the design or uh, the digital space. Graphic design could be in a magazine. Graphic design could be on a billboard. Graphic design could be in a flyer. Visual design is on a website. The duty, I guess, as a visual designer, perhaps being to effectively design to influence or garner a reaction from users that are engaging uh, in a product or service. Graphic design, yes. I mean, the fundamental principles of graphic design do overlap very much with just the entire realm of visual design, um, as does what one might call and what I went to school for, which is communication design, because you communicate visually as well. Um, so visual design uh, in, in the space of user experience design has a lot to do with um, the point of engagement, the point of stimulation, the point of representation of an idea or a brand or an identity or a system of components across the entire suite of tools or products or services in a seamless and cohesive manner, if that makes any sense. A lot of overlap and a lot of uh, shared value between them. The next two are very closely related, at least in uh, relation to each other, which is information architecture and uh, UX writing. Yeah, I think you you, you talked uh, about IA a bit in, in earlier in the show. Yeah, so if you are an information architect, you're generally tied into organizing the stuff of your website and figuring out, like, a lot of the times people will think, well, IA is just navigation, and I had mentioned earlier, IA goes beyond that. It's the overall structure of your site. And the thing I like to use is it, the idea that it builds scent for your website. Hmm. Um, like smelling sense. Yeah. Because think about when you go into Google analytics and you look at landing pages on your site, obviously the home page okay. is a major landing page, but people land elsewhere on your site. And if they're looking for other information, does that landing page give them a scent to know where they are? Oh, that's really okay. interesting. On I the like top of your site. The trunk, the I trunk too, test. I too was like, what What exactly would that mean? But yeah, I guess that does make sense. <laughs> it's, the argument that it comes back to is something that goes back about 12 years, I think, at this point. 10 years. Um, a debate I had with Jared Spool about um, breadcrumbs and the value of breadcrumbs. Because they take up space. They take up physical space on your webpage. His data showed that they that nobody used them nobody clicks on breadcrumbs as a tool my argument was they provided scent to the user to understand where they were within the confines of your site 
Hmm. And how do you measure like that? That's a hard thing to measure. Uh, but that's part of what information architecture is all about. And an architect comes in and thinks about, okay, if you landed on the computer science degree, does that scent provide you the information if you want to go over and look into, you know, an MBA, for instance, because it was in the College of Business in this case? Um, probably not. And so hmm. you think about how these things interconnect and intertwine so that users can get from point A to point B, regardless of where they where they land. Um, Patrick, I think you said you use the uh, uh, analogy of a compass. Um, oh, earlier when we were talking about it, yes. Yeah, that that I think rings very true, right? It's the same. It's a different way of saying synth, right? You need that true sure. north to kind of figure out where you're going on a mm. site. That's what IA does in the confines sure. of UX, and and it's worth I think touch or just noting that there's an entire plethora of exercises behind that too, right? To make sense and organize information just generally to structure it in a way that makes better sense to an experience you're trying to provide. Yeah. I think Krug calls that the trunk test, right? Like if you're, if someone kidnapped you and threw you in the trunk of a car and dropped you off in the middle of the website, could you find your way to, <laughs> the analogy kind of breaks out breaks down there but. yeah no that i think that's right <laughs> it was a test on navigability right yeah 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 the last part of that so i, I mentioned ux writing a ux writer is somebody uh, think about it there's a really easy way to sort of divide this right your blog is not ran by a ux writer but the little pieces of information that exist within an application can be driven by a ux writer copywriters will deal with long form oh okay okay yeah yeah it's an interesting uh right right it's an interesting you like ui and ux elements yeah so i was going to mention like there's a lot of overlap i think too with with just generally the practice or not well the profession of a ui designer uh they often i think whether they like it or not, um, are involved in a lot of the the language that's found in mm-hmm. the interfaces that they're designing for. Um, I just was going through uh, a, a small challenge with some developers today on a, on exactly this topic, where we had a a list of items, and each uh, line item had the ability to be saved or shared. And if it were saved, it would go into a grander list. And this has to do with the context of saved searches and search history and what have you. And when you're in that saved list, he had said, okay, well, well, I, I mentioned we have to have perhaps a way to, uh, to, to eliminate that, that saved line item or remove it. And so they prototyped it with the term unsave, which to me rings like, well, who, <laughs> first of all, who uses that term unsave? Secondly, does regardless of my perspective on it, does it ring true to the people who are using the product? Um, and what we found was it doesn't. That was our hypothesis. But also <laughs> the value in, in focusing on something as simple as whether the word unsaved makes sense is in the future, say the context of a saved search query is actually reframed as a favorite. So are you unsaving a favorite or are you unfavoriting at that point? So we arrived at the terminology remove, which is right. broadly applicable to several different instances of that, that interfacial experience. We, we had a, a similar uh, issue come up with a, an open source project that I work on where there was the question of um, when you're soft deleting a record, 
what is the verb to use for that? Because like it, you want to, you want to communicate to the user, this isn't going to be deleted forever, but at the same time, also like this is kind of a destructive change and you should be careful. Um, I think we settled on deactivate for this one. And then for a different one, we used archive. Um, mm, yeah. And it it's very contextual, but I, I, I get what you mean by the difference between like a copywriter and a UX writer. Very, the, very different goals. <laughs> the phrase, if you want to Google it and, and get some articles on it, is microcopy. That's, yeah, that's, that, hmm. I, that I'm familiar yeah, with. Yeah. That's one that will ring true with a lot of people. It's like these little blurbs five, six words here and there that help you understand interfaces and, and interface design. I, I know that you didn't intentionally order these in any particular way, but I like that the first item is UX generalist, where <laughs> the firm might have one person doing everything. And the last one is UX writer, which is the person responsible for doing microcopy. Doing on, the micro, like, yeah. Components. <laughs> micro, yeah, like, micro. Like, it, when, we, when we talk about like how much budget a department might have for various tasks to like allocate a specific specialist. Yeah. Like this is definitely on the opposite side of the spectrum from a generalist. (laughs) Yep. And this is like, it's a crazy conversation because it's, it's just so extensive and almost exhausting to have to, to have to categorize and businesses love to do this. They like to categorize based on what their perceived skill set is and slap a label on it and then make teams out of it. And that's why I encourage thinking of UX design as a process. And as a team, you have particular values, particular strengths and particular weaknesses. And you're looking at where are those crevices and voids in, in, in your team and, and those values that certain people might bring to the UX process might fill that. And that that's, mm-hmm. that's the way I look at it. So, the last area of all of this comes down to, okay, so here's what UX is. Here's what some of the titles are. What do you do about it? Um, how do you hone these skills? How do you expand these skills? First and foremost, I want to say, figure out which broad skill set applies to you. We mentioned a bunch of these at the start of the show. Is it, are you a research nerd? Or do you like communication? Do you love running tests? Or do you like making something Figure out, like, which one of those things appeals the most to you. One incredible resource, and I just, I literally, as I was researching this episode, I noticed this uh, feature. If you go to uxmatters.com, they're one of the resources we'll mention again here momentarily. They've got this background that looks like a little grid of UX titles. In the upper right corner, if you click a button, there's a button that says View Infographic. It brings their background to the foreground, and it has all of these interconnected bubbles of research and design and strategy and development, and it shows you how different skills kind of connect and overlap. And that, to me, was super cool, and it helps you understand, like, the person who does your information architecture doesn't necessarily have a lot of overlap with the people doing A-B testing. But if you are doing design and product strategy, those can be two different roles, but they're also very closely related. So that can help you figure out if you look at, think about what your passion is, what interests you, and see what it connects to within those bubbles. I think that's kind of a good way to go and 
dig in a little bit, at least to figure out where you should branch out to if you want to broaden your horizons, so so to speak. Oh, really, really quick point. I, I think there's probably a depth that someone who wants to get into UX should spelunk to in each of those areas, even if they ultimately choose just a very narrow set to really specialize in. Just a guess. Yeah. I think that's probably right. Yeah. Yeah. The two things that strike me from looking at this right now is how accessibility is out on its own lone island. <laughs> yeah, I don't love um, that. I'm going to say that. I don't love right. that either. And I immediately I was like, okay, where is the design and where's the development? Oh, it's everywhere. So we couldn't put accessibility everywhere. We had to put it on a lone island. And the other thing is like the uh, the form that this takes on insinuated to me the the idea that out of any one of these could grow a bridge or a new what I'll call molecule or something. So it is, it does give you a sense of the organic nature of the entire landscape. Yeah. The second thing you should do, read, 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 read. I can't emphasize this enough. There are four sites, four websites I'll recommend to you right now. They're all easy because they all start with the name UX for some reason, because <laughs> whatever reason, I guess Google likes the, the <laughs> keyword UX. Um, and, if you go to the show notes, I think we've got sites from literally every one of these in the show notes. UX Booth, UX Planet, UX Collective, UX Matters. All of these put out content that can help you understand any and or all of these facets of, of this whole realm. So you can start to figure out what makes sense to you, what doesn't, what you like and what you don't like, and, and what you think you're good at versus what you think you need to learn more about. I could throw a few more out there if you want. Oh, yeah, do it. Uh, UX booth, uxdesign.cc. Uh, Envision runs a bunch, a series of talks that you could catch up mm -hmm. on. Um, design.cc, interactiondesign.org. And of course, uh, a, a go-to for me is, and it's a little bit more broad and conceptual, but the 99% Invisible Podcast oh, yeah. and mm -hmm. a list apart. A list of parts always mm. pretty fundamentally sound. 99% uh, Invisible is a good plug because I enjoy the hell out of that because it does get very broad in con in concept. Uh, if those went by too fast for anybody, don't worry. I'll go back through uh, <laughs> when I'm editing and I will add links to every one of those in the show notes. There's also a lot of online training out there. Now, these are less official. There are some certifications you can go get. Do it if you want to. They're expensive as shit. <laughs> a lot of them range from, you know, literally thousands to like ten, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars. Don't advocate for that for a lot of people because it's out of your budget. But there's online training that you can go look at. It's got a lower barrier to entry. Udemy's got a really good course that will have linked. Plural site, I know this episode is airing about mid April. You only have about two weeks left to take advantage of it, but Pluralsight's offering all their courses free to folks during the whole COVID-19 lockdown. Go check them out. Um, and not to plug our stuff, but thegymnasium.com. We've got two or three different really good UX courses you can take. They are free, no strings attached ever. And there are a lot of those resources out there that you can go and learn some of these concepts. Even if you're just starting out and, and really want to learn the basics and, and all of this entry-level stuff, those are all really great ways to get started in that. Folks, 
Stick with us. We're going to take a quick break and be right back, and then we will get you on to your next show that you're hopefully going to listen to that maybe will be 99% middle, <laughs> invisible. I don't know. The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Patrick, man, thanks for coming on with us tonight. We appreciate it and, and digging into all these things. And, and uh, there's this is such a deep well. Um, again, the show notes will be open it's to everybody. Crazy. There's a ton of information there. But take the microphone for a couple minutes. Tell people where they can find you, what you got going on, or anything at all that they want you to know or that you want them um, to know. I'm, I'm still making stuff backwards. Well, I guess first and foremost, I think my uh, primary outlet is Twitter. So you can find me on Twitter at, I'm going to spell this out for you, Michael. Okay, thanks. At P. Brannigan, P-B-R-A-N-I-G-A-N. I feel like there's like four um, too few R's in that. That's that's where I'm at. I hope I spelled that right. Um, you can find the majority of my commentary on just about anything, mostly design and gaming, to be quite frank, uh, there. Um but yeah, gaming uh, like video gaming or like board gaming or game design. Video games. Um, I've been dabbling in some indie game development for the past cool. year. Uh, plug to Godot Engine, and um, <laughs> yeah, that's where uh, I would say that's where. If you want to, you want to find out more about me. Otherwise, uh, as Michael mentioned, I'm over at Aquint, and uh, we are in fact hiring designers right now. So a senior UX designer role is open. Um, oh, feel free snap. to reach out to me for that. Um, other than that, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, sir. So if you want to connect with us on the socials, we are Drunken UX on Facebook and Twitter. And you can come and chat with us now at drunkenux.com slash discord. And you can see all of Michael's like, <laughs> wonderful UX memes <laughs> on on Instagram.com um, slash UX podcast. It's good. DevOps, no, dude. The, the, the It's a whole range. They're, they're quality. I did want to say one last thing. Go for it. There were a lot, there were a lot of titles and labels mentioned in this podcast. The first thing you want to do if you're trying to get into this world is throw all of them out the window. Don't worry about them. <laughs> yeah. I'm serious. Don't worry about them. And yeah, they, they will change and evolve. And I think if there's one piece of advice I can give anybody, it's just to roll with that and understand that you need to grow and evolve and change. Keep reading. Keep. Was that a bet or a dare to say something? Uh, <laughs> no, I, 
I'm laughing because he said the one piece of advice I have to give you, and then he didn't say what I thought he was going to say. What did you think <laughs> I was going to say? Something. The, the only thing I have left to say is something stupid like, hey, folks, keep your personas close, but your users closer. Bye-bye. <laughs>